It's uh, good to be with you tonight. We are near the end. This is our second to last uh, sermon in our, our fall series titled Legacy, looking at the life um, of Isaac. And then the primary focus has been the life of Jacob. In Genesis chapter 25, leading us, we'll conclude next week with Genesis chapter 35. The, the main episode of these middle books, or the middle chapters, excuse me, of the book of Genesis has been the conflict between Jacob and Esau. Early on, even in the womb, we're told that they are conflicted against each other. And then um, upon growing up, we see Jacob stealing first the birthright from his brother and then stealing the blessing from his, fa- from his brother. And then he leaves home running away from his life under murderous threats from Esau. And then last week, we looked at how 20 years later... There was this glorious reconciliation that happened as Jacob came back, met Esau, they reconciled with one another, and they each went their separate ways. And the story ended with Jacob crossing over the Jordan River and going into the promised land. And if it were a Disney movie, it would have said in Genesis 34, and they lived happily ever after. But it's not a Disney movie, it's real life. And the passage that we're going to look at tonight, and I would encourage you to open in your Bibles if you brought those with, it's also included in the, um, the handout which you hopefully received, is Genesis chapter 34, which is one of the most difficult, shocking, horrific passages in all of Scripture. Um, it's confusing, it's troubling to look at, but it's God's Word, Amen. And I I was just laughing to myself this week as a common resource site on the internet that shows different well-known preachers and all the sermons they've taught. When you look at lots of the chapters of Genesis, there's multiple ones. I think for Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob wrestles with with God, I believe there was six to eight sermons on it. And then you got to Genesis 34, and there were zero sermons on it. And I remember studying this passage when I was in undergraduate school. My professor said, maybe we will be judged in heaven for the passages we chose to skip. And so I said, well, I'm not going to skip it, right? Like, let's not not have that looked upon us. But Genesis chapter 34 is a difficult passage. And I want to state that up front. This, This shouldn't be easy for us to read. It's not like a movie or or a TV show or a book that has some moral ambiguity at the end. Right, where there's kind of a bad guy, but he does some good things, and you kind of sense a, a tension about him. At the end of this story, the three kind of main actors, the three main parties, all come out looking bad. They're morally bankrupt and corrupt. We don't look at them conflicted. We say how this situation played on all parties was simply wrong. And so I'd encourage you to, to follow along with us. Um, we're going to work through the passage together and draw um, some lessons from it as we look just at the, the sinfulness of humanity that, that's seen in this passage. Chapter 34, verse 1 says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And so we're introduced to to Dinah, who we've seen, if you've been going through um, this series with us, we've seen already mentioned that she was the daughter of Leah. And it's specific here that that she is born to Leah, not to, to Rachel or to any of the concubines, specific because of the actions that will follow as well as the characters. 
And so Leah's daughter, Dinah, goes out and she's the daughter of Leah. That word daughter actually occurs 14 different times throughout this passage here in Genesis chapter 34. It's one of the two key words that keeps coming up. And it actually says that she went out to see the women of the land. It actually, another way to say that is the, the actual word there is daughters. The daughters of the land. So the daughters of Leah go out to the daughters of the land. And so the idea is here that she's leaving kind of the safety of her father's protective camp and she's journeying out to see things. Verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and he lay with her and he humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. So Shechem, who we see is not just any person amongst the land. Shechem is the the prince of the land. His father Hamor, the Hivite, the town itself is named Shechem. And so he is the, the prince. He is royalty in this area. And it says that he seized her. Another way of saying that is he took her. Took her is the actual word. Seize gives us kind of this idea in English to help us translate the forcefulness of it. But the Hebrew word is took, a word which appears 14 different times. This word took, and the play on words will come up. Sorry, daughters is 14. Took, I believe, is 10. 10 different times will come up in this, this play on words to what Shechem took and then what the response will be in taking back. It says that Shechem seized Dinah and lay with her and humiliated her. Because there's no technical term in Hebrew for sexual assault, some commentators try and get around this passage by by playing with words and saying, well, maybe it wasn't actually what lots of people think it looks like. But the, the scholarly consensus is, yes, this was sexual assault. This was forced rape upon Dinah that Shechem did to her. He humiliated her. It says this, though, that after doing this, Verse 3, that his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He had an sense of, of infatuation towards her. And so he said to his father, Hamor, get or take, same word, take for me this girl for my wife. Now this sounds crude for us in our English language, but this was the general way they talked back then. Get a wife, take for him a wife. It's used actually both of Abraham and Isaac already in the book of Genesis. Verse 5, now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. This idea here that Jacob heard wasn't that Jacob heard directly from a, a report, but this word had gotten around throughout the community. Word had spread through Shechem. It was the town gossip on what Shechem had done. His, his horrible deed had started to spread, and the rumors and the gossip was going around, and Jacob, the father of Dinah, heard this. It says this, But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came home. He took his peace. He withdrew from the situation until his sons, who would be customary out following and watching all the livestock, came home. Now, it's interesting here because Jacob actually now moves and takes a back seat for the next 20-some verses and just reappears at the last two verses of the chapter. Verse 6, And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry. 
because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. So Hamor leaves the safety of his city, and that same word that Dinah went out, he goes out, leaves the safety, and goes towards Jacob's camp to initiate a conversation with him. And the son's response here, as we'll see, they come out and they hear of it and they are angry. They are indignant and very angry. And it says, because what had been done, Shechem had done an outrageous thing and it was such a thing that must not be done. An outrageous thing. Some translations say a disgraceful thing that also catches. It wasn't just outrageous like we would use the word outrageous, but it was outrageously disgraceful what had been done. It's a word that's normally associated with wrongful sexual behavior throughout the Old Testament. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 29, it's for one who's committed adultery with a neighbor. It says, what an outrageous thing had been done, that that had taken place. So it's this idea of wrongful sexual behavior. As well as this, the second phrase, such a thing must not be done. That phrase shows up a few other times in the Old Testament in drastic incidences of moral decline. In Jeremiah chapter 40, we see it when a man is trying to hire another man to go murder his neighbor. And he says, such a thing must not be done. It's an awful, atrocious thing. Interesting that both of these concepts, that it was an outrageous or disgraceful thing and such a thing that must not be done in Israel, they find themselves both united only one other time as far as I can see in the Old Testament and that's in 2 Samuel chapter 13 when Tamar is approached by her brother and she herself is a victim of sexual violence, actually this time by a relative. Now I want to make sure before we move on that we don't miss what the Bible says about what was done towards Dinah. That sexual assault and violence is wrongful and sinful, period. Sexual assault and violence is wrongful and sinful, period. There is no justification. There is no ambiguity on the actions of what Shechem did towards Dinah. It was wrong. It was sinful. It was a disgraceful thing before God, such a thing that ought not to be done. And what he did was totally wrong. And we sometimes struggle with this and commentators will look at this passage because from here on, Dinah kind of shrinks into the background in this story. She becomes, in a sense, a pawn in the hand of other powerful men who try and play her. But please don't think that because that happens to her, the Bible is, in any sense, condoning what was done to her. All right, sexual assault, sexual violence is wrong and it is sinful. And scripture teaches that throughout the whole Bible, including here in this passage. Verse 8. But Hamor, so the father of Shechem, spoke with them, talking to the brothers, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. And so Hamor comes with, with a deal towards the sons of Jacob. Notice here that Hamor skips over the motivation or the reason why he's coming. Right? He kind of doesn't, this outrageous thing, he doesn't even name it. He doesn't even seem to mention it, even though it's obvious that everyone knows it, including the brothers who he's talking to. And what he's asking is not just for, specifically for the hand of Dinah to Shechem, but not just that, but for more, right? Make marriages, give your daughters, that's plural. 
And what he's asking is for this is an opportunity for us, kind of these two separate groups, the Hivites and the Israelites, to kind of become one group. And he's offering them this idea of a full partnership together in life. We will take each other's daughters and sons, we will intermarry, and the land you can continue to purchase and have property and live into it. Verse 11. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price, and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Shechem here now speaks. And it's, it's a customary thing in that time for some sort of bride price. You're not purchasing someone, but it's a customary gift to be offered to the father of the bride. If you remember, if you've been working through us, when Jacob was marrying into the family of Laban, right, he had to work for many years for both of his wives, the first one he was tricked into marrying. And it was just a customary cultural thing in their time. But Shechem shows his infatuation with it, and he leads with, hey, whatever you want, I'll name. Now, this is obviously not good negotiating tactics, right? If you're looking to purchase something, a house, don't go into it and say, hey, whatever you want for this, I'm going to pay you for it, right? But it shows his infatuation, his, his youthful demeanor, and his naivety into going in and saying, whatever you want, whatever I can give to you, you name it, I will do it. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And we see right up front, the author wants to make sure we notice this right away, that all of the interactions that that they have with these sons of Jacob are motivated by a deceitful response. That's important for us to know. Not only is what Shechem did, obviously was atrocious, it was a disgraceful thing, but how the brothers respond right away, we see this is a deceitful thing that they've done. They're living in sin themselves. So what does their deceit look like? It says this, verse 14. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So they first answer Shechem. He says, whatever you want. And their request is this, we want not just you, but all of the men of the area, all of the men of Shechem to be circumcised, right? They answer Shechem first. And then to his father, to Hamor, they say, if this happens, then all that you have asked, this mutual agreement between us will take place. We will become one people. Notice the play on words continues with their their threat in verse 17. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. You've took Dinah. If you don't do this, we will take her away and we will be gone from you. Verse 18. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. Now this is a reminder to us just of how great and prosperous and how much God had blessed Jacob. Right, That the sons were in a negotiating tactic that they can say, what do you want? Like, we want every male to be circumcised. And the two people go, all right, that sounds good. 
right? You don't do this to get to a, into a guy's family who has no money and no possessions is in a poverty. You don't want to make a deal with that kind of guy. But if we, if we remember even back to the last two chapters on the overabundance and the extreme blessing that God has given towards Jacob. See, Hamor is coming to him more than just trying to rectify the situation that Shechem has caused with Dinah. He's thinking long-term business and wealth advantages towards himself. And he's thinking, oh, okay, if we do a little bit here, this will actually benefit us in the long term. He's not thinking of Jacob or Jacob's family. He's thinking of how can I turn this wrongful action into something good for me. And so he goes out and these, were, these things please both of them. Verse 19, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. It specifically there calls him a young man to, to say this is this youthful passion, this youthful naivety that, that Shechem has. That he immediately rushes out and has this done to him because of his infatuation with Dinah. Now he was, the end of verse 19, he was the most honored of all of his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city saying, and so they gathered together. Hamor and Shechem, they go to the gate of the city. The gate of the city in ancient times is where business was done. This is the business center where all of the men would have traveled in and out. If you needed to contact every important person, this is where you went. You went to the gates of the city. It's where business took place. And the two of them, remember that, that they're the, he's the king and Hamor, excuse me, Shechem is the prince and he's the most honorable of them. They go and they say this, verse 21. These men, speaking of Jacob and his family, these men are at peace with us. They're friendly with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them, the, let us give them our daughters. Right? If you have a good news, bad news scenario, they're leading with the good news. Right? Like, hey, everyone, look, at this could turn out well for us. This could increase not just my wealth. This could increase everyone's wealth. This could increase all of our prosperity if we do this thing, if we give our, wives, our daughters as wives. Verse 22, only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And then it's like they're recalling from the shock, they're recalling, like, say, what, what did you just ask of us? As a reminder, verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? You start to see Hamor's motivation, right? He's like, do you see how much stuff they have? They are so rich. We could have some of that wealth as well. Only let us agree with them. And they will dwell with us. Verse 24. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. So all who went out, that would mean every adult male. It's another expression. Everyone in the town who went in and out, every adult male listened to this and agreed with them. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. And so the entire population of Shechem agrees with what, what, has been, what has been proposed, thinking of this is a long-term business play that we will get and that we will get advantage of all of the blessings that God has given to Jacob. Verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, 
So, so remember here that, that Dinah was the daughter of Leah. Simeon and Levi are Dinah's brothers. They are also daughters of Leah. These are her full brothers. That's why it points out who Dinah is, whose daughter she is. Simeon and Levi, they took their swords, right? All right, you've taken our sister. We're going to respond in kind by now taking our swords, the same word. They took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and they took, there's that word again, they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Now there's another twist in the story that we don't see till actually verse 26, that after this incident had taken place with Dinah, that she seems to be held here as a prisoner in Shechem and Hamor's own house until Jacob agrees to that. So not only is she a victim of sexual violence, she's abducted and held hostage, in a sense, by Shechem and Hamor for their family to agree to get her back. And so Dinah was taken once by Shechem, and now she's taken again, but this time by her brothers to safety. Verse 27, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. Now, we don't know for sure who is talked about there in verse 27, the sons of Jacob. There's 11 of them, right? How, who, who exactly is the author referring to? We don't know for sure. The expression stands out enough, though, from talking about Simeon and Levi, that it seems to, that the scholars agree that, that it seems to be indicating that more than just Simeon and Levi participate in the plundering of the city, is this all of the sons? We don't know. Is this probably at least the ones who are full brothers of Dinah? Probably, right? But, but there's, there's an even greater involvement by the family after all the males have been killed to go through and plunder the whole city. Verse 28, they took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. The, the list there is exhaustive. And there's this irony, right, that they thought they were making a business deal to get rich and to ultimately get all of Jacob's possessions. When in their deceit, Shechem and Hamor were, were actually victim to what Simeon and Levi were now doing, to which all of their possessions were becoming towards Jacob's family now. It's this inclusive list with that last phrase, all that was in their houses. Basically, if you can think of something that wasn't already included in it and it was of value, they took it with them. They captured it and they plundered it with them. Verse 30, father enters back into the scene. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the lands the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household, meaning you too. Verse 31. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? There's no moral conclusion here. We're left to see all sides in the dark. Certainly Shechem is deceitful and disgraceful in his actions. But Simeon and Levi are also seen in their excessive response as being wrongful in what they've done. Yes, their sister had something wrong done to them. Their proper response was not to go, though, and deceive people and murder an entire city and take all the plunder for yourselves. 
But what's shocking here as well is Jacob's attitude towards his daughter. Jacob takes this, this extremely passive approach. And if it seems, if you read this passage, you're like, it seems to be that Jacob cares more about how people think about him than his own daughter. You're seeing it correctly. And it's this shockingly passive response from Jacob. And if you've been working through the book of Genesis with us, Jacob up until this point could be described as anything but passive, right? He is the active aggressor in almost every situation, the schemer. Literally, that's what his name means. He's the schemer always moving behind the scenes to make pieces work. And here, when his own daughter has been a victim of such a horrible thing, he simply stands back with his hands like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. He, his silence is shocking and it's deafening. And it's not condoning the action. It's, condone, it's, it's, it's condemning Jacob's response of just passivity and letting his daughter be. That wasn't the proper response either. He should have demanded some sort of justice, sought to have his daughter back, somehow the right to be the wrong to be righted, but instead he stands back and lets other people handle it. <clears throat> well, this passage has a lot of sin in it, all the way around. And, and our, our conclusion tonight is, is to kind of look at this passage and think, what, what does this teach us? And tonight we're going to look at three realities of sin from this passage. Three realities of sin. Sin is the unifying concept with, with Shechem, with the brothers, and with Jacob. Three realities of sin in our lives and in the life of this passage that we see. The first is this, that no sin is private. No sin is private. Meaning this, no sin just is our own internal thing that doesn't affect anyone else besides me. We see with all the three major parties at play here that their actions had devastating consequences on the people around them. That sin has more than just private consequences. Sin always infects the people around us. But in our world, we live in such a hyper-individualized world that we so often view sin through the lens of just our sin before God and how it only affects us. But when we start to see how our sin before God affects not only us, but the scriptural view looks at sin and sees not only the consequences and the effect it has before us, but it starts to see that sin doesn't have just consequences between you and God, but has consequences between you and the people around you as well. That no sin in your life is just a private thing that has no bearing or no consequences on the people around you. Just because only you are held accountable before God for your sin doesn't mean only you are affected by your sin. Just because you are the one who will be held accountable for your sin doesn't mean you're the only one who will be affected by the wrong or the sin in your life. There's other examples throughout scripture of this idea. The most obvious to me is in the book of Joshua chapter 7 that the people of Israel have just entered in back into the promised land after the exodus has taken place from Egypt. And they, they've had a great battle at Jericho where God's given them the victory. And then they send a small group up to, to Ai and they are utterly destroyed. And in the passage that, that, that Joshua goes and he seeks God's face, he says, God, what's happened? And God's response is, Israel has sinned. Israel has wronged me, has done against what I have commanded that to do. There are public consequences towards a sin. And then God gives him the process. Joshua goes through and it ends up being one man's sin. 
It was Achan's sin. But his sin that he committed in private that only he knew had such public consequences and actions towards others. My friends, our sin has consequences not just between us and God, it certainly does, but it affects everyone around us in our lives too. Now I hope that the the gravity of your situation between you and God and the separation of your sin should motivate us to deal with our sin between God. But if it doesn't, just think of how sin affects the people around you. Think of how your sin affects your family. If you're married, your sin affects your spouse in great ways. If you're a parent, your sin affects your kids beyond what you would probably even think. It affects our family relationships. It affects our friendships and the other relationships that we have. It affects our work. My friends, our our sin affects the church. That the sin of believers affects the church in negative ways when it's left undealt with. And no sin is a private affair between you and God. All sin ultimately has public consequences and is a far-reaching thing. The second reality of sin that we see in this passage is that no sin is excusable. No sin is excusable. See, Simeon and Levi rationalized their response in their mind. Right? They, they rationalized, they, they excused away their response towards sin because what was done to their sister was awful. Yes, it was an awful thing. And so they used that awful thing to excuse what they were then about to do. And they thought, well, it's okay because this is what happened and now we're responding this way. But, but the response that, that Simeon and Levi has is a wrong one in its excess. It's not that they shouldn't have done something, but it was no reason for them to go and slaughter and murder an entire city. And we too, just like Simeon and Levi as well, I, I think we so often struggle with rationalizing or excusing the sin that's in our lives. At least I know I tend to do this as well. well what, what excuses do we make for sin in our lives? What excuses do we make? I think one excuse that we can often make for sin is it's just who I am. Sin is just who it's, I, 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 just, I, I just have a short temper. It's just who I am. The Bible says not to be angry, but it's just who I am. I can't change that about me. I can't change the fact that I'm an impatient person and every time someone changes something, I can't handle it. That's just who I am. I'm impatient. Or I have this, or I have that. It's just who I am. And we can use this to to explain away our sin. Even in so much of the rise of, in our days, we have all these personality types. You can identify yourself by numbers, by letters, by like animals, by Disney characters, right? You can, you can identify your personality by all these things. You're like, oh, well, that's, that's just my personality type. That's the sin that I have in my life. And we make it like it's an excusable thing because it's, oh, that's, that's just who I am. Another excuse that we so often make for sin, it's, it's because of my past. It's because of, of my past. If you only knew what my childhood was like, if you only knew my upbringing, if you only knew what, what I've gone through in life, then you would know why I do this, why I treat people this way, why I live like this. Now, now, please understand, I'm not trying to downplay the effect that our upbringing or certain pains or hurts in our lives has on us. I'm saying using the hurt and the suffering in our life to justify sin is never okay. 
Using hurt and pain in our life to justify sinful behavior in our life was never God's plan or intention, and it does not honor or please God. So don't use the hurt and the pain and things that have happened in your life to excuse behaviors and actions and attitudes that you have now. My, my thought goes to this, this common phrase, right, that, that the pain you don't transform, you just transmit to others. And rather than transmitting our pain by using our past as an excuse of how we treat people, we need to take our sin to Jesus and our hurt to Jesus and have it transformed by him. The excuse, this third one that I think would, would probably have been the one Simeon and Levi made, it's because of my circumstances. It's because of my circumstances that I acted this way. It's because of something that happened in my life. that This excuses my behavior in this way. I wouldn't normally act this way, but this was a desperate situation, and so I had to act sinfully. I think lastly, and perhaps the most dangerous of these excuses for sin, is this idea of my sin hasn't hurt me yet. And if my sin hasn't hurt me yet, then it must not really be that bad, so I'm going to continue living in it. Right? My, 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 my habit of doing this, the way that I treat people like this, this hasn't had any huge consequences on my life. And so often, because we haven't felt the weight of sin, we don't stop from the action of sin. And we think that the patience of God that should drive us to repentance means that the patience of God is excusing our behavior. And just because we don't see consequences towards our sin never justifies that those sinful things are right. Yet so often, because we don't see the consequences, we can think and deceive ourselves into excusing sin in our lives. Maybe there's others. But what excuses do we make towards sin? What are you excusing in your own life? This passage, I think, is a warning to us to stop making excuses for sin that's prevalent in our lives, to deal with the ugly side of sin, to deal with it seriously. The last thing that this passage teaches us about sin is that no sin is unforgivable. No sin is unforgivable. See, the sons, ultimately, their, their ultimate struggle was this. They were not willing to forgive for what had been done to their sister. Right? Simon and Levi were not willing to think about even forgiving the people who had wronged them. But the reality is, when we think about sin, first we need to realize this, that God's grace is greater than any sin. And when we think about sin being forgiven, we first need to think of it before God. And if we think that somehow some sin can outsin God's grace, then we've unrecognized, we haven't understood all of what God's grace actually means. There is no sin that's greater than the grace that's in God's heart. Amen? And God is great enough to cover our sin. So God can forgive us of our sin. And because God forgives people of sin, he then calls us to live the same way and to forgive the people in our lives. I don't know about you, but for me, forgiveness is one of the hardest things to practice in the Christian life. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things to practice sometimes in the Christian life. Because it goes so against our natural inclinations for revenge, for our own sense of justice. And I think oftentimes we push against forgiveness because it can be misperceived by other people. And we don't want to be misperceived by others, so we'll lean towards vengeance rather than towards forgiveness. 
See, for, for the brothers in this, if Simeon and Levi would have forgiven Shechem for what he'd done towards them, they could have been seen as weak. They could have been seen as permissive and they didn't want to be misunderstood. And so rather than be misunderstood and forgive, they took vengeance into their own hands. Forgiveness runs the risk of being misunderstood. See, forgiveness can be misunderstood at sometimes like people thinking that if we forgive them, then what we're saying is it's okay that you did that. Forgiveness is not saying that a wrong or a sinful action was okay. Forgiveness is not saying that something was morally right that God's word says is morally wrong. Forgiveness also doesn't mean that there shouldn't be consequences towards sin. Right? You can forgive someone of a wrongdoing and that person still should go to jail for what they've done. Right? It doesn't remove the consequences towards actions. But you can still forgive even though the world may say you shouldn't. Forgiveness should extend towards other people because we have been forgiven so much. Why do we forgive? Forgiven people forgive other people. And if we've been forgiven of our sin by God, then that should motivate us to forgive others. As C.S. Lewis put it so well, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Right? We can forgive even the inexcusable, the disgraceful acts in others because that's what God has forgiven in each and every one of us. My friends, this, this passage is an awful passage. It teaches about the awful consequences of sin. But I pray it points us to the seriousness of sin. And as we think of the seriousness and the fallen nature of humanity and the sin that was true back then and the sin that's in our own hearts and lives, it doesn't lead us just to a place of despondence, but it leads us to a place of grace before God. Friends, that even sin like this, even rape, even murder, can be forgiven by God. That's how great his grace is. If his grace is big enough to cover that, his grace is big enough to cover any sin that's in your heart, any sin that's in my heart. God, we do thank you for the grace that we find in Jesus Christ, for the love that was displayed by his sacrifice for our sin on the cross. God, we pray that, that as we read stories like this one, that we would be motivated to deal with the sin that we see in our lives that we wouldn't make excuses for it any longer, that we wouldn't harbor up in our hearts unforgiving attitude towards others, but would learn to forgive. God, would you help us, give us the grace, the mercy that you promise. We're thankful for the promise of your word that if we confess our sin, you will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for that great promise we have. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.